Welcome to Feminist Christian Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organization defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There is more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our declaration on women's sex-based rights, which has, which has been signed by 29,007, 29, over 700 uh, people from 157 countries, and it is supported by 423 organizations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 51 country contacts, engaged in defending women's rights. We changed our name from WHRC to WDI at the start of the year, but our goals remain the same, the protection of, women's, of women and girls' sex-based rights. Feminist activism is fabulous, much better than armchair feminism, where you watch and talk, because you are more directly making political change. Plus, the pleasure of working with sisters is more when we are doing things together. If you would like to join us and get involved, please fill in the form that you will find on the website, the, the volunteer form. And this week, we have Isla McGregor from Australia. She's going to um, tell us about the censorship of uh, gender-critical women in Tasmania. Isla will talk about some of the organizations and individuals who have actively campaigned to prevent women's views from being fairly presented at public forums and in the media, both in Tasmania and nationally in Australia. We will have then Marg Carnot and Tige Inston from New Zealand, and they are representatives of LAVA, which is Lesbian Action for Visibility Aotearoa. They will talk about why LAVA was first formed in 1988 and how Aotearoa NC, NC has gone from being the first country in the world where women successfully fought for the boat in 1893, and the first country to have the word lesbian in its legislation, thanks to the work of LABA, to being a country which has now one of the highest, if not the highest, use of puberty blockers and where women's sex-based rights have all but disappeared. And lastly, last but not least, We'll have our own Sheila Jeffries, who will be talking about the insult of transgenderism, which is a very eloquent title in itself. We're going to listen to our first speaker, Isla McGregor. Isla has worked as an advocate for whistleblowers in Tasmania and Australia since the 1990s. And Isla met Sheila Jeffries in 2012, where she worked on the campaign against the push for full decriminalization of the sex trade in Tasmania. In 2018, Isla, with several other women, set up Women Speak Tasmania to oppose self-ID legislation in Tasmania. The very first time that uh, I met Sheila Jeffries was back in 2012, as you say, uh, when Sheila came to Tasmania uh, to lobby uh, state politicians and non-government organisations. Um, we worked together for a few days and had numerous meetings with uh, politicians and representatives of uh, peak um, social justice organisations. And I must say it was the beginning of um, now a 10-year period that uh, I have been absolutely shocked at the degree of censorship, 
uh, attacks on women, um, uh, slander, undermining um, to, to all the women globally who are working on these issues. Um, I often refer to women um, working on the declaration campaign issues as the canaries down the mine. And uh, they, this is the biggest mass whistleblowing movement uh, that uh, I think the world is seeing at this time uh, from women. Uh, when, when Sheila came here, there was uh, an attempt to stop her from speaking at two public forums that we organised. Um, one was uh, at a, a public venue at the Quaker Meeting House and the other was at the uh, University of Tasmania Law School. Um, Jade Barker, who worked with the Scarlet Alliance, which is the uh, pimp front group here in Australia, um, threatened to smear one of our co-organisers' names all over Hobart if this forum went ahead and attempted to have the, uh, the Quakers withdraw the venue. Uh, the UTAS Law School resisted the attempt at no platforming Sheila, which was um, very pleasant. Uh, media uh, were not going to do an interview with Sheila, given uh, the controversial nature of this debate here in Tasmania. That was very disappointing. Um, but uh, once we put out a media release on the attempt of no platforming, um, our national broadcaster uh, actually uh, asked Sheila in for an interview with the ABC. So uh, that was the beginning of the campaign. And when Sheila was here, it was the first time I'd ever heard about the cotton ceiling. Uh, and uh, I was utterly gobsmacked at uh, the backstory to the uh, transgender issues and um, how that was, you know, interconnected with uh, the campaign on uh, the global sex trade. So from then on, it was just a matter of time before within about three years, um, the impacts of um, my and my fellow feminist uh, position um, on transgenderism became targeted by uh, trans rights activists. Um, by 2015, uh, five women uh, from the UTAS Women's Collective were expelled uh, without giving any reasons, but essentially after they had been interrogated uh, online about their views on trans ideology. Uh, Bromwell Williams uh, submitted a formal complaint to UTAS about the Feminist Collective uh, it got nowhere. Um, uh, Bromman also had an article published in the university student paper Togartis, um, which interestingly enough, three years later uh, was censored. It was removed, um, citing uh, defamatory imputations, but ne nevertheless, it, it had remained posted for three years. Um, we continued to work on um, uh, sex trade events uh, right through from 2016 to 2018. Um, at the beginning of uh, 2016, uh, 
the Law Reform Institute published a discussion paper on amendments to the Births, Deaths and Marriages Registration Act, which was uh, effectively a way of uh, implementing self-ID legislation. Um, uh, a member of the Women's Liberation Front here in Tasmania, Tessa Ann, wrote a submission to the then Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, Robin Banks, outlining her concerns about this options paper. It was, uh, the paper was titled, Legal Recognition of Sex and Gender Diversity in Tasmania, Options for Amendments to the Births, Deaths and Marriages Registration Act, 1999. Uh, Tessa wanted to meet with Robin Banks because she was uh, very dissatisfied with uh, a lot of the definitions and the explanations in the paper. So she arranged to have a meeting with Robin Banks and her policy advisor, Lisa Wagner. Uh, during that two and a half hour meeting to discuss the issues and ask questions, uh, Tessa um, became very distressed um, and was very unhappy with the way that she had been treated. Um, this was uh, uh, an event that would would reach the Australian press. Um, it was uh, two articles were published in our national paper, The Australian, by Tasmanian journalist Matthew Denham, um, basically saying that uh, Tessa had allegations of bullying, intimidation, and ridiculing by the Anti Discrimination Commissioner and the policy advisor. So I think it's indicative that. Uh, you know, even the people at top levels in institutions and uh, government uh, so-called anti-discrimination agencies are prepared to uh, apply the very tactics they've been put in positions to prevent. And I think it's it's also sends a big statement that legislation is, is not the answer to a lot of uh, issues concerning women's human rights that uh, it is cultural change and very profound cultural change that needs to occur. And uh, that is why we now have this groundswell of activism amongst women uh, spreading word in the community about exactly what that cultural change means. Um, uh, we organised uh, an event at Parliament House for International Women's Day in 2017. Uh, Tessa Ann was one of the uh, speakers. Uh, this was an event, uh, once again, talking about uh, the global sex trade. Um, we sent invitations to the president of Tasmanian Women Lawyers, Adrian Morton, and requested that uh, that invitation be forwarded to all her members. Morton wrote back to us and said that she would not pass the invitation onto uh, Tasmanian women lawyer members, citing that there was a Wolf member speaking at our forum and uh, the views of that Wolf member on transgender issues were unconscionable. Um, so we did follow up with complaints to the president, uh, 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 the board of Tasmanian women lawyers, um, but uh, they were completely fobbed off. So by this stage, it was clear that um, 
most uh, women's organisations in Tasmania had become transgendered. Uh, in 2017, uh, a lot of you will be familiar with um, Dr. Robert Jensen um, and his book, uh, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. Uh, Robert was over in Australia for the uh, Sydney, I think it was the Sydney Writers' Festival, to uh, speak on a panel and to give a, a series of talks in various states in Australia. Um, we uh, invited him down to Hobart uh, to give uh, a lecture on World Environment Day on June the 5th. And uh, he was talking about uh, toxic masculinity and the environment. And this, of course, was, you know, quite a, a, a useful but controversial um, topic to some people within UTAS. Um, the chair of the forum was uh, Dr. Meredith Nash. She was the deputy director of the Institute for the Study of Social Change and a senior lecturer in sociology. Uh, unfortunately, she withdrew from chairing the forum two hours before the forum was to go ahead. And uh, this left us a little bit in the lurch. We weren't prepared. Uh, Simone Watson from NORMAC uh, took over chairing of the forum. Um, the reason that uh, Meredith Natch had withdrawn from chairing uh, was that she had had complaints from the UTAS Women's Collective, once again uh, alerting uh, uh, Meredith Nash to Robert Jensen's views on transgenderism. Um, by 2000 and 17, late in 2017, um, the uh, Tasmanian Law Reform Institute held a public forum at the University Lecture Theatre on the discussion paper on self-ID. Um, we attempted to be uh, at that forum, to actually be on the panel for a discussion, uh, but our application was rejected. Uh, no excuses given, no response whatsoever. So it was a very shut down process of uh, only having the, the ideological line being pushed by uh, the UTAS um, Tasmanian Law Reform Commission. Um, in 2018, I uh, had published an article on Tasmanian Times outlining uh, five case studies of uh, uh, censorship and suppression in Tasmania on these issues. It was titled Silencing and Censorship in the Trans Rights Debate in Tasmania. Um, Dr. Meredith Nash, who had uh, removed herself from chairing Robert Jensen's forum, um, uh, sent uh, a letter to Lindsay Tuffin, the editor of this journal, Tasmanian Times, threatening defamation action. Uh, Lindsay contacted me and asked me what uh, my side of the story was, which I provided, and he persisted in keeping my article um, posted on Tasmanian Times. I will say in Australia, um, Tasmanian Times was the only free speech journal in this country 
that allowed radical feminist voices to be constantly published. Uh, very sadly, Lindsay handed over the reins of Tasmanian Times about, I think, four years ago now, uh, three or four years ago, and the, the new editor, uh, a Green Party member, absolutely refused to publish any more of radical feminist uh, articles uh, on the website and also went further to remove comments from key articles that we had published or even remove articles, uh, which sadly was not a part of the arrangement between the previous editor when he sold on the, uh, the uh, journal. Um, in October 2018, uh, Women Speak Tasmania ramped up. We formed, started a Facebook page. We started putting out regular media releases on the Births, Deaths and Marriages Registration Act, which eventually was rammed through the lower house of state parliament in uh, November that year without any proper debate or proper community consultation. We were not contacted for comment by any papers or TV stations. Eventually, we did do interviews on radio with one small broadcaster here, and um, there was one opinion piece that was published in the Mercury after, only after the bill was pushed through the lower house. Um, uh, one radio host with ABC here, uh, Rick Goddard, uh, was heard criticising uh, Women Speak Tasmania on radio one morning. Uh, I was notified about this and I contacted him and demanded uh, an immediate interview that morning. Uh, myself and Bronwyn Williams went into the studio and uh, had an interview at 10.30, which was pre-recorded. And it would be the most hostile interview that I've ever had with media in my life. Um, so uh, Matthew Denham uh, did write a, a couple of articles um, around that time representing our views in the national paper, The Australian. Uh, around this time, four were women's non-government organisations um, put out a media release condemning Women Speak Tasmania. Uh, the organisations were the Women's Legal Service in Gender Equality, which used to be called She, Self-Help and Empowerment, Hobart Women's Shelter and Women's Health Tasmania. They said in their media release, there is no research or service experience to suggest that men who seek to harm women change their gender or masquerade as transgender women in order to do so. Acknowledging in law the human rights of transgender people does not reduce the human rights enjoyed by non-transgender people. Protecting women's rights and supporting transgender people are not mutually exclusive. To the extent that WST have an issue with that, it is clearly an ideological one, and in its effect, it is discriminatory. Uh, their media release didn't get coverage in the media either, I should mention. But what's interesting is who was on the board of some of those organisations. Uh, Robin Banks, Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, was on Women's Legal Service Board. Utah's Meredith Nash, was on the Board of Women's Health Tasmania, as was Jade Barker from the Scarlet Alliance. 
And Alina Thomas, the CEO of Engender Equality, was also a member of the Scarlet Alliance. <clears throat> um, this cabal of groups also attacked uh, Women Speak Tasmania when they gave their presentations to the Legislative Council in mid-November. Um, um, in 2018, uh, Women Speak Tasmania was scheduled to have a uh, Human Rights Week event on the 10th of December to talk about uh, the impacts of gender law reforms on women and children and LGB people. Um, Robin Banks um, wrote a letter to the organisation who was hosting us, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, and this was leaked to us, um, but it was, it was a sort of a public leak through circulation. Uh, now, we have to bear in mind Robin Banks was the former anti-discrimination commissioner. And in this email, she wrote to the then um, president of Wilkes, uh, Lindley Grant, and she said, I'm writing out of concern for Wolf, having just seen the invitation to your Human Rights Week event at which you have women speak Tasmania as the speakers. I anticipate that the reason you have invited this group is their apparent promotion of women's rights. Sadly, this is not a group that support human rights for all. They have at present a nasty and untruthful campaign targeting members of Tasmania's gender diverse community. They do not support the human rights of people who are gender diverse. Indeed, they deny their very humanity and existence. The giving to this group a platform for their hateful views by Wolf will be seen by many in the LGBTI community as an endorsement of Wolf, by Wolf of those views. This is the very real potential to damage the reputation of an extraordinary and compassionate long-standing human rights group. If there is any way that I can help you to negotiate what I think it is a, is a very difficult situation, I am happy to do so, Robin Banks. Now, unfortunately for Robin Banks, Matthew Denham at The Australian got hold of this email and he wrote up once again uh, a couple of articles about this in the national press. Uh, she, of course, um, tried to worm her way out of this, but uh, we'll get to some reflections on Robin Banks uh, coming up to recent times regarding our coming public forum. Um, in August 2018, Women Speak Tasmania publicly released proposals for reforms to the Anti-Discrimination Act 1998. Um, these proposals uh, were pulled together by Bronwyn Williams um, and uh, uh, numerous discussions were had with the Legislative Councillor Ivan Dean. He put forward amendments to the Legislative Council based on our discussions, um, but uh, these alternative proposals were not allowed to be discussed in the Legislative Council in full. So we really didn't have a chance from the get-go. 
coming up to more contemporary times, um, we um, ran a campaign on um, a proposal by a Hobart City Councillor, Jax Fox, previously named Holly Ewan, um, who wanted gender inclusive uh, signage in Hobart City Council toilets. Um, I attended uh, several Hobart City Council meetings to present our point of view about these issues. Very hostile meeting with uh, some of the women at those committees on council. Um, Jax Fox attempted to have uh, myself or any other women from Women Speak Tasmania banned from attending any council meetings and speaking at all. Um, so, uh, you know, Jax Fox was uh, very embedded in the uh, gender identity lobby, worked with TRAS and um, key people in the movement over here, like Rodney Croom and uh, Martine Delaney. So the gender lobby have mounted a, a very concerted campaign against Women Speak Tasmania. It hasn't been effective. Um, they understand that uh, every time they uh, do negative things towards us that we're likely to get some traction, not necessarily in the media, but Hobart's a very small town. And I think that one of our advantages in, in Tasmania is that uh, this is a very small state. Our population is 500,000. Uh, uh, the capital has a population of 200,000. So we have um, a lot of access to politicians, uh, community organisations. A lot of people know each other. Um, I certainly have a background uh, with my work uh, advocating for whistleblowers uh, on multiple different issues. Uh, social justice and environmental issues. So uh, people do know what has been happening to us. Um, we've had some major support from uh, 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 Annie Warburton, who was previously uh, a journalist with the ABC and Councillor Jeff Briscoe. And we did run in Human Rights Week a couple of years ago uh, an award for service to free speech, which was dedicated to both Annie and Jeff for speaking up publicly in defence of women's rights to participate in these debates. Now, coming up to date, um, the Coalition for Biological Reality uh, under the helm of Stasha Free um, have uh, had in train a national public forum to be held in Hobart in another two weeks um, on the impacts of gender law reforms. Uh, Jax Fox from Hobart City Council, um, the Lord Mayor, Anna Reynolds, and one other Green councillor, Helen uh, Burnett, have campaigned to have our forum cancelled. Uh, a motion was put before council in January this year and uh, that motion failed uh, on vote nine to three. Um, unfortunately, the media have uh, only covered this uh, briefly. Uh, we had a small write-up in the paper at the end of last year over this, uh, well, must be nearly an 18-month campaign 
to prevent this forum going ahead because it's been deferred twice before over COVID issues. Uh, this week's been a huge debacle in our federal parliament with the um, debate on the Religious Freedom Bill. Uh, the issue of women's sex-based rights has come home to roost finally in a big way in Australia just this week. And Senator Claire Chandler has just tabled a bill in the federal Senate um, for amendment of the Sex Discrimination Act uh, to save women's sports, but it will have a much bigger implication. But I just thought it was really important to let everybody know that um, the, uh, the fight for, for women is now in the public arena in a massive way and the conflict has taken off. We are going to listen to Mark Kernow and Tige Inton, who are from New Zealand. We have their recorded testimony, which we are about to run for you. But uh, first, let me introduce you. Uh, Tige was one of the original founders of LABA, which uh, I remind you that's Lesbian Action for Visibility, Aotearoa back in 1988. And Mark was the person who motioned the reform of LAVA in August 2020. LAVA is committed to fighting for lesbian visibility and sex-based women's rights. They are same-sex same attractive, not same-gender attractive. And, and they reject gender identity as a dangerous ideology that denies the reality of biological sex. See more about LAVA in their website www.lava.nz. So we are now uh, about to listen to their testimony. I'm Mark Kuno from Lava in New Zealand, and I'm here with my friend Tiggy Enstone, and we're going to talk to you today about sex-based rights in New Zealand, what the current situation is, particularly for lesbians. And I'm Tiggy Enstone, um, and I'm from also from Lava in Wellington, New Zealand, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some of the background of Lava. Lesbian Action for Visibility in Aotearoa. Mm. Okay, so we began Lava about um, 16, 17 months ago, really in response to absolute frustration with what was happening in New Zealand with regard to um, our rainbow advisory groups. And one day I just had enough with the advice that our groups were giving to government departments. And I thought these groups are supposed to represent lesbians and they're not, and I'm sick of it. And so I put out a call and we had a big Zoom meeting and we finished up having a meeting in Wellington with around about, I think around about 20 at our first meeting. So that's how we uh, got together. And then we had to decide what we were going to call ourselves and someone suggested we should resurrect lava. And so we talked to Tiggy. Mm -hmm. And the story of lava actually goes back to, um, <clears throat> to the 1921 attempt in um, Britain to include lesbians under the criminal code um, that covered gay men. Um, and the um, Lieutenant Moore Brabazon who said we should ignore them not notice them, not advertise them. And um, and the parliament took heed of that and didn't, didn't pass the amendment. So, um, and the story actually is 
um, of lava revolt around the Human Rights Commission. Now in New Zealand, the Human Rights Commission was set up in 1977. In 1980, the National Gay Rights Coalition applied for, to be um, included in the, in the protect, grounds for protection. But the uh, commissioner um, not only wrote, a, wrote a, a report suggesting that in actual fact, what should be done is lesbians should be included in the criminal code, um, he wrote, he approached the Prime Minister and made made that recommendation. So we've had a rather rocky time um, with with the Human Rights Commission in this commissioner in this country, who um, I might have told the uh, media that some groups um, deserve to be discriminated against. Um, uh, and when, when the homosexual law reform bill passed in 1985 and decriminalised um, the um, activities between gay men, um, part two, which would have provided protection under the Human Rights Commission, failed. So then um, we get to 1988, and that's when LAVA was formed. And it was formed in response to the government's uh, notification that it was going to introduce a, uh, a bill to include uh, sexual orientation, disability, which would include people with AIDS, and the elderly uh, in the human rights uh, legislation. But um, that government didn't survive the next election, and um, in 1994 it took until for, for that to happen. But LAVA um, you know, very because because we were very aware of how visibility and invisibility was used against lesbians, um, we lobbied much against um, lots of people's opinions for the word lesbian to be included in the bill and um, not to come under the umbrella of homosexual. And when it passed in 1994, it the, the um, it it passed with. Uh, the wording sexual orientation, which means homosexual, bisexual, lesbian, or heterosexual. We actually lobbied that heterosexual didn't need to be in it, but ne never mind, because they were the oppressors. But um, but uh, that's that's how um, that 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 was Lava's beginnings. Oh, I, might, I might add too that then later um, Lava had some terrible trouble with 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 a. Uh, we we in Christchurch we started a, a lesbian newsletter, and a, a male to female transsexual wanted to advertise a lesbian support group he identified as a lesbian uh, in our newsletter, and we had a terrible to do with the Human Rights Commission over over that. Um, it uh, <laughs> it was never resolved. <laughs> so it's been ongoing, hasn't it? The issue. The, the the lesbian visibilities come full circle now. Yeah. Um, we got protection under the law. We had the word lesbian in the law. Things were okay for a few years, and now we're right back to where we started. And this time we're being made invisible because we're being included under an umbrella that says trans women are women and trans rights matter and all those other slogans that we're all so mm -hmm. familiar with. And the perspective of lesbians is absolutely lost. There is no avenue at all for our perspective to be heard and that is why we formed so that a lesbian perspective could be heard and would be heard on matters that affect us 
and that affect women. So that's the purpose of Lava Resurrected. And we meet, <laughs> Lava meets regularly um, every month. We're between 15 and 20, sometimes a few more women regularly attend and we're involved in all sorts of action. We have a wonderful website, um, thanks to our webmistress, Sabina Schneider. And if any of you want to have a look, it's simply lava.nz. So have a look at our website. It's updated regularly and there's some really good information on it. Okay, so here we are, lava and the situation in New Zealand and the things that we're actually um, up against. And one of the, <coughs> excuse me, one of the biggest, as we've alluded to, is the Human Rights Commission, who are redefining the word woman. And of course, other government departments are, are following their lead now. And they say, well, this is what the Human Rights Commission says. So they're back to doing what um, they were doing in the 1980s, um, making us invisible, redefining women, redefining same-sex attraction as same-gender attraction, and so on. And we've had a number of delegations to our current commissioner, which has been a spectacular waste of time in terms of his response. So the main areas of concern in New Zealand at the moment, as we see them, are um, our parliament. We've just had two major pieces of legislation which are absolutely devastating, following what's happening in the rest of the world. And those of you who are watching this will no doubt be very familiar with them. One is self-sex ID, where now it only takes a simple declaration to say that you are the opposite sex and to have that changed on your birth certificate. And the original birth certificate just disappears, is locked away. We don't even have a clear process for that. Um, and you'll all be very aware of the implications of that. So the same uh, sex self ID, which was passed unanimously in our parliament. And the other one, which was just passed last night is the conversion practices bill, which wasn't quite unanimous. We had seven brave people who spoke up against it, all of course from our more conservative party, the National Party. It's very heartbreaking that all of this is being driven by the left wing. It's, for those of us who are long-time left wing people, um, yeah, heartbreaking. So that's where we are legally and we've got hate speech still on the books and still to come. So. That's where we, we sit with that. Well, I was, um, yes, well, the um, bill that passed last night, the conversion therapy, um, which is now an act, mm. had 100,000 uh, submissions mm. and uh, to, uh, presented to, to the select committee. And so, so the most that we've ever had in this country, isn't it? Mm. And, um, and we had, we had, we actually some of the MPs were extraordinarily rude to submitters, but not and not only that, um, put one of them put on her um, Facebook page a posting saying that she didn't listen to the people that uh, that opposed the legislation. So the whole thing was a farce, wasn't it? it you was. know, people put enormous amounts of energy, and we had some international experts, people with. Mm. real qualifications and just superb professional presentations and they were just completely ignored there was mm. absolutely no notice taken 
of all of the points made. And in terms of the sex self-ID, there was a much smaller number of submissions because we only had three weeks from the time it was announced for when submissions closed and we were in lockdown. But the same process, they just ridiculed and laughed at people who were presenting. Mm -hmm. It was just appalling in terms of a lack of democratic process. And that one, there were 70%, weren't there? 70% of submissions were opposed to the legislation. Mm -hmm. They didn't even put that in their report. So those are two things that are an absolute shame and a mm -hmm. blot on our history. And we, we have a proud history of leading the world in so many things, especially things to do with women. Um, 1893, we were the first country in the world to give women the vote. And now look where we are. We don't even know what a woman is anymore. Um, so, <laughs> well, some of us do, but right. our government doesn't and our public service doesn't. So Parliament's completely captured. Our media is completely captured. It is almost public impossible. Service. The public service is completely captured. We have one publication in this country which will put a print publication that will publish gender critical information. And even they, you know, balance it out and all of those things. The others, we don't get a look in and they regularly are posting, oh, stories about the trials and tribulations of being trans, one-sided information. Um, our statistics uh, department now has gender as the default category when it's gathering data. So anyone who knows even the littlest bit about data knows that this is now meaningless. The data that we are gathering is meaningless because we no longer have sex-based data and we can't therefore compare any changes, anything that's going on with previous information because mm -hmm. it's different criterion. Mm. Um, and so that's really very, very serious. Education, we are starting with preschoolers and certainly in schools, teaching children that they can be born in the wrong bodies, that, you know, boys can have vulvas and girls can have penises and you can't tell who's a boy and who's a girl just by looking at them. And if you think you're a girl, if you're a little boy who likes to play with, I don't know, Frilly, likes frilly dresses and playing with dolls, or if you're a little girl who likes, you know, Lego and Meccano, well, that means you're the opposite sex. And it is as basic as that. It's just mm -hmm. appalling, regressive 1950s sex role stereotypes. That's what's happening in our education system. And just recently, um, one of our education groups, which I'm a part of, we sent out a survey to schools simply looking for base data on the number of transgender students. And we finished up oh, all over the news and schools were told they shouldn't respond to us. And it was just extraordinary and that we were breaching students' privacy. All we wanted was numbers. So anything that we do gets labelled transphobic. Mm. Great label, no explanations, just labels. You're, and you're all familiar with that, but it's so bad at the moment here. Yeah. And we got banned from Massey University. We got banned from the city council libraries and town halls um, until uh, uh, Speak Up for Women took a case to the High Court and won. And, um, and the High Court said that ours was not hate speech. We were entitled to our opinion. Um, and 
when the Speak Up for Women had the um, had had a meeting in the Michael Fowler Centre, the mayor supported the opposition to it mm. and put the the outside lights floodlit the the venue mm. in um, trans colours, pale mm, pink, well, pale that's right. blue, yeah, trans colours. Yes, yes. Oh, goodness, that's yes. unbelievable. And the other, the other thing is corrections. Mm. The 6% of, of the uh, female prison population are, are tra trans men. Trans uh, women. Tra yeah, trans women, yes. Tra tra men, male to female trans, yes. yes. And the, um, the but the, that six, that's only 6%. We don't know how many others are because the people that have changed their birth certificates are registered as women. So mm. we, we actually don't know what the yeah. statistics are. Yeah. And it's just like it's happening everywhere in, in crime that's reported. You know, there's a huge surge in the number of women committing mm. sexual offences. Mm. All they have to do is say that they're women and that's how it's reported because all it needs is your own say-so. Um, so yeah, it's just appalling. The other um, area that's really bad is health, and there are two mm -hmm. aspects to that. One is our Ministry of Health, which still has on its website that puberty blockers are reversible, fully reversible and harmless and provide a pause for children, which we all know is not true, and there's an awful lot of evidence against that. Um, we don't have any centralised data around puberty blockers because there's a number of ways that you know you can get them through your GP or you can get them through a specialist or you can get them through youth clinics. The data is not centralised. They say it doesn't matter and doesn't need to be centralised. But we do know that after getting figures from 1DHB that there, there were more children in that city, uh, a small city, than there are in the whole of Ireland receiving puberty blockers. We're dishing them out like lollies, no question about that. Um, there are concerns that a lot of people want to speak out and are too frightened to speak out. People who are speaking out are being hammered by their employers, particularly if they're in the public service. The public service have training for their staff from a group called Inside Out who have large numbers of government contracts and get huge amounts of government funding to do this training and they uh, tell people how they must use pronouns and they, uh, the usual stuff, you all know what it is. We have a woman, a friend of mine, who um, had already handed in her resignation and so felt safe to ask questions. And she was, she asked a question of the presenters that said, were they saying therefore that her lesbian sister should be attracted and open her dating pool to male-bodied people who call themselves lesbians. And she was uh, had a mediation meeting and she had a censoring letter from the deputy chief executive because she used the extremely offensive term male-bodied. So it's unbelievable. And this is this is what we're up against in this country. And we wonder, how did we get to this? from 1893 when we were the first country in the world where women won the right to vote. That fight was won here first, 1893, and now, as we said, and we the union movement has always been so radical, mm. and yet the PPTA was out there protesting yep. against the yep. Speak Up for Women meeting. Yeah. Yep. 
it, it's been completely captured by the gender ideology. Yep. As has the PSA, all of the unions, they've been mm. captured. Yep. yep. And so women are no longer being supported. It's time for us to, to finish off, but what we just wanted, the points we wanted to make as part of our conclusion are that there are a number of groups, probably eight or nine groups in New Zealand fighting this fight, and we are supporting each other, but at this stage, there is no sort of umbrella group connecting group, but we are working on that, but those groups are supporting each other. We have a fabulous LAVA website, LAVA, L-A-V-A dot N-Z, which you can look at and which is updated regularly, weekly, by our fabulous web mistress, Sabina Schneider. So those, those are really important things. And Tiggy's got one final thing to say. Well, yes, I do. There is there's one thing which which is extraordinarily difficult that we're up against in this country is that the mainstream media are so reluctant to cover either. So most people in the country don't even know what what has happened and what is happening. And um, it, it's it when we when when you go out and talk about it to people that they sometimes think that we're a bit mad. Yes, it's true. They never do that. They never do that. They say. Yes, they've got no idea, and that's mm. our big challenge. Mm. Thank you all. It's been great talking to you. Yes, thanks for having us. Yeah. <laughs> now we have one of the bravest, one of the pioneers. Also, we have our very own Sheila Jeffries, one of the founders of our organization WDI Women's Declaration International who's going to talk uh, to us about the insult of transgenderism. So, Sheila, over to you. I think we need to move on to the next stage in our struggle against transgenderism. That is moving beyond confronting individual challenges, such as men entering women's spaces, sports, and opportunities, to opposing the idea and practice of transgenderism itself. I'm going to talk today about how the concept and expression of something called gender identity on the part of men who impersonate women is an insult to us. You may wonder what is new about that. So many women now recognize that today after the great activism and successes of the now worldwide movement for women's sex-based rights. But I do not think that the insult of transgenderism to women is fully realized. There is an inclination on the part of many feminist activists to find an acceptable reason for the exclusion of men with gender identities, such as women's safety, without opposing the very idea of transgenderism. This is completely understandable. It may seem to make sense tactically, since most of the public understands such emergencies as the threat to women if men with gender identities are in women's prisons or masquerading as leaders of the Girl Scouts on overnight trips. The public, we may feel, are not yet ready for understanding why it is a problem that men impersonate women at all. It is also understandable because of a desire for safety against the intense fury and hatred that result if women do speak out. In the UK, after all, the police will arrest women and visit their homes to raid their bookshelves. And as in the case of a woman in the UK recently, 
who put up stickers saying that men cannot be women, confiscating an academic book, critical of the transgendering of children, as if it was Mein Kampf, except that they would probably have left Mein Kampf behind. If women mute their fury and concentrate on sp criticizing specific egregious examples of men's intrusion and threat, rather than the very concept of transgenderism, the idea that men can become women itself, they may escape the most severe forms of punishment. I am hugely impressed by and appreciative of the work of my feminist sisters in defending women's sex-based rights. It worries me though, to see some feminists who describe themselves as gender critical, saying on social media and websites that they are not transphobes and saying that they support something called trans rights. I do understand that these feminists are seeking to protect themselves from the very real fear of being punished. They're probably lying because I find it hard to believe that they're really in favor of something called trans rights. Trans is an invention, a form of sexual fantasy for the majority of the male hobbyists who adhere to it. Men who play act a gender identity in public are not an oppressed minority in the way that others who are oppressed on the grounds of sex, race, class, and sexuality are. The idea that their identity should be taken seriously and enshrined in law is not just insulting, but detonates a bomb under all the huge amounts of work that feminists and all those concerned with social justice have been doing for decades. I do think that all those involved in feminist activism against the demands of men who impersonate women know all of this. And I shall say more about the dangerous way in which the concept of identity is eroding social justice later. The term gender critical itself, though it may appeal because it is unthreatening, implies that there are just some bits of gender that are problematic and some bits are perhaps that can be saved. Radical feminists, on the other hand, understand that gender, which means sex role stereotypes, needs to be abolished in its entirety. Radical feminists are not critical of gender. We work towards the world where it no longer exists. Gender critical is a polite term used so as not to sound too confrontational. I argue that the very existence of the idea that men can be women, let alone its expression in public, is insulting. This is generally recognized in relation to transracialism and even transableism, in which mostly men seek sexual excitement by pretending to have a disability, but not in relation to the different ways in which men imitate women for sexual excitement or entertainment. It is interesting to consider why the behavior in which members of the ruling class of men imitate and mock members of the subordinate class of women is seen as positive or at least something that needs to be respected and to earn its practitioners the status of a rights-bearing category. Similar behavior after all, in which white people adopt and act out stereotypes of black people for their own amusement, which is called blackface, is despised and called out by all people who see themselves as right thinking and progressive. The men and women who imitate other cultures and ethnicities do not pose a threat of physical or sexual violence to women and girls and their number is small. But their practice, even in just going to a fancy dress party in the costume of an equality category, which is not their own, is excoriated. 
I argue that this distinction is false. I shall talk today about all the forms of what can reasonably be called woman face, the behavior in which men impersonate women. It takes three forms. The majority of the men who impersonate women are what used to be called in sexology, the science of sex, transvestites, i.e. heterosexual men who are sexually excited by acting out what they understand to be women's subordination through clothing, hormones, or surgeries. I'm a minority of female impersonators are all gay men who are unhappy about loving men without pretending to be women. I will also cover another category of gay men, those who perform as drag queens. This is now a serious career path as drag becomes more and more dominant in Western culture and drag queens appear on TV competitions, on panels and talk shows as celebrities, all through the mockery of women. All of these men are included under the umbrella of transgenderism in the definitions of organizations devoted to what they call transgender rights. All of these men do woman face. Those who are gender critical, but nonetheless respect what they refer to as trans rights, do not define exactly what they respect and what they do not. But there seems to be a dividing line between men simply expressing their gender identity in public space, which is seen as okay, and men's behavior of masquerading as women in order to gain entry to women's protected spaces, toilets, prisons, and refuges, or trying to steal women's opportunities through entering women's sports, or winning women's quotas in politics or women's literary prizes, which is not. But the insult of transgenderism does not stop at practices which have such manifestly harmful effects upon women and children. The expression of gender identity, I argue, is insulting in and of itself. The problem is that men doing woman face are insulting to women when they're just walking down the street or sitting in a cafe, activities for which they need an unwilling audience of women in order to get sexual excitement. But we do not have language to enable us to express the insult and anger we feel every time a man pretending to be a woman intrudes himself into our sight lines. I want to talk today about what kind of language is available to describe the injury we experience. Consider men's role-playing of gender in the workplace. Because the right to gender expression is now commonly recognized in workplaces, it is likely that women have no right to object to their male workmates playing dress up with stereotypes of womanhood at the next desk. Men doing this insulting behavior may be their bosses, and women may have to respect them in meetings. Women's rights go out of the window in such situations. When a man transitions in the office, his female workmates must now refer to him by a woman's name and pronoun. They must suppress their feelings. Indeed, there is no language for their feelings, and they are likely to experience incoherent resentment or anger. Women may even feel that they are the problem if they cannot accept that Jack is now Daisy. I do not imagine that white men will be able to play act being black in the workplace or indulge their identities as wolves, as those men who are into transspeciesism might like to do. They would not have the right to play act protected in the same way. It's useful to look at the language and concepts used to teach people what is wrong with blackface to see if this can help to provide a language to describe the injury to women when men play at being women. An article in Vox magazine advising people not to dress up in blackface for Halloween parties provides some useful language. 
It says, for example, put down the black and brown face paint, step away from the bronzer 12 shades darker than your skin. That is, if you're at all interested in not being a walking symbol of racism this Halloween. The language here is useful. We should be able to say to a man doing woman face, take off the high heeled shoes if you want to avoid being a walking symbol of sexism. There is a problem with the word sexism though, because women are seen as having less human, stata, stata, human status compared with men. The term is often treated as a joke, certainly not taken seriously in the way the term racism is. Woman hating or misogyny are stronger words. The article argues that blackface contributes to cultural prejudice against black people rather than being harmless behavior, saying, we have blackface performances to thank for some of the cartoonish de de dehumanizing tropes that still manage to make their way into American culture. We should be able to say this about drag, for instance, which mocks women for entertainment in the same way as blackface mocks black people. We should be able to argue that drag disseminates poisonous prejudice against women into the culture. But drag is currently seen as just wonderful fun and is increasing in ubiquity in Western culture. The Vox article quotes an academic, David Leonard, saying, blackface is never a neutral form of entertainment, but an incredibly loaded site for the production of damaging stereotypes the same stereotypes that undergird individual and state violence, American racism, and centuries worth of injustice. The same man says that blackface can serve to support implicit bias and discriminatory treatment in areas from law enforcement to employment. All of this could be argued against womanface, that it supports implicit violence and discrimination against women. We are a long way off being able to make such arguments against the influence of drag and transvestism on the status of women. But that I argue is where we need to get to. The academic in the article talks of blackface causing harm in terms of eliciting anger or sadness or triggering various emotions and describes the behavior as the chance to mock, dehumanize and to dismiss the feelings and demands of others and that it perpetuates a racist society. All of these are good words that women should be able to use to describe our reactions to men in woman face, because whether in the supermarket or on stage, their behavior dehumanizes us and creates anger and sadness. He says that those who do not understand what is wrong with blackface should be asked what is right about it. He says that fans of blackface should ask themselves, why do I derive pleasure from this? What's the investment in doing it? And what's the investment in defending it? This is a question that is not asked of the transvestites that have gained credibility with some feminists for seeking, seeming to support our cause by arguing that men cannot become women. A number of men have become celebrities for feminists because they publicly state their opposition to much of current transgender politics. They're often lauded for that and for their ability to criticize the most outlandish behaviors and claims of transvestites from an insider perspective. I will not name names here, but many of you will know exactly who I mean. These men need to be asked how they dare to continue with this hugely insulting behavior and they need to desist and apologize. That would be disappointing to them though, because it would remove the only reason for their celebrity 
and they would fade into the woodwork of the male population once more. The unacceptability of blackface is now well understood in popular culture. There is even an article in Good Housekeeping magazine, for instance, on why blackface is wrong, which is also helpful in understanding why womanface is insulting, it says. But the impact of blackface is no laughing matter. The practice depicts black people as unworthy of human dignity. It's not a stretch to say that caricaturing black people creates a moral justification for violence. So it should not be taken lightly. Seeing drag as a moral justification for violence, though, is the complete opposite of how it is celebrated now. Arguably, the version of woman face that is drag is closer to blackface than the other main version, transvestism, is, in that drag and blackface are usually practiced as forms of entertainment. Transvestites, on the other hand, role play women for sexual excitement, and a part of their fetish is being able to do this in the company of and in front of women. They may engage in impersonating women just on weekends or as a more permanent lifestyle choice. There is a form of blackface, however, which is closer to what is now called expression of gender identity. A rather small group of white people do role play aboriginality in Australia or Asian or Afro-Caribbean people in the US. This is unusual behavior and it's commonly practiced by women as, as uh, is as commonly practiced by women as, as by men, which is in itself interesting and needs to be analyzed in the context of the oppression of women. Because whilst for the men, it is likely to represent a sexual fetish, for the women, the motivation will be different. But this is behavior is usually decisively rejected and seen as reprehensible as in the case of Rachel Dolezal, a white female academic in the US who pretended to be black, even to the extent of establishing quite a reputation in the discipline of black studies. She lost her career and reputation. Transracialism though, in which men impersonate other ethnicities or cultures for excitement, is usually seen as completely different from transgenderism. And it's interesting to see why that is the case. An article last year in The Conversation, an academic blog platform by two men, a pro-vice chancellor and an equity projects officer from Edith Cowan University in West Australia, sternly rejects the idea that there is any similarity whatsoever between blackface and womanface on the grounds that people who transgender have no choice. It is involuntary, whereas blackface is a choice. This implies that transgenderism is somehow innate. That is not true, of course. Men who engage in transvestite behavior have a choice not to do it. They may feel impelled to do it because they have been so much affected by the transvestite pornography they consume. But that is not the same as having no choice. The Example that the article's authors use to illustrate their argument that blackface is entirely different is the UK influencer of Holly London, who has come out as non-binary Korean. London has received considerable criticism, including from Korean cricket critics who excoriate him for appropriating their culture. The concept of appropriation is frequently used in the critique of men and women impersonating ethnicity. 
It can be equally well used to describe the insult of men doing woman face, but it is not. Women are not seen as having a culture. He uses precisely the same language and concepts as men with gender identities do to justify his behavior. He says he is transitioning from white to Asian, for instance, and talks of being born in the wrong body. It feels so good to finally come out as a Korean non-binary person after being trapped in the wrong body and wrong culture my whole life. The idea that you can be trapped in the wrong culture as well as a new wrong body is a new twist. He has had 18 surgeries to shave his jaw and change his eye shape, costing 250,000 pounds. This month, he announced that he was going to reduce the size of his penis because the average size of a Korean penis is smaller than his appendage. He wears feminine clothing and identifies as non-binary, but no appropriation of womanhood is seen in this fact by, by his observers. He uses they, them pronouns, so does not identify as female, just not male. The academic state that no, you can't identify as transracial, but you can affirm your gender. At their core, they say, London's words and actions are a prime example of racism, cultural appropriation and transphobia, enacted from a position of considerable privilege. Trans and gender diverse experiences don't equate with someone deciding to change their appearance to be part of a group whose experiences, community and struggles they can't fully understand. Men, they imply, do fully understand the community and struggles of women. Arguably, being able to understand what it is like to have the body and experience of the opposite sex might be even more difficult. So this is a strange distinction to make, but male authors like these cannot be expected to recognize women as fully human. Despite such vehement rejection by critics of the idea that transracialism and transgenderism could be seen as similar, there are some who are prepared to make that argument. Back in 2017, an article was published in the feminist philosophy journal Hypatia, which occasioned huge controversy. Rebecca Tuvel, an assistant professor at a US university, compared the cases of two persons who pretended to be members of an equality category that was not their own. Caitlin Jenner, the athlete, who in old age started to impersonate a woman, and Rachel Dolezal, who I mentioned above. Tuvel argues that considerations that support transgenderism extend to transracialism, given this parity, since we should accept transgender individuals' decisions to change sexes, we should also accept transracial individuals' decisions to change races. There was a big campaign on social media to get the journal to retract the article, which split the editorial board. The article stayed up, and Tuvel has now got a tenured position as an associate professor of philosophy at Rhodes College in Memphis. But this clearly demonstrates the dangers that face feminists presently if they wish to make such an argument. Whereas Jenna and Dolly Zal do woman face and black face as lifestyle choices, some men do black face just as part of drag queen performances, that is just for entertainment and as part of their careers. These, these uh, people who do black face do tend, these drag queens, to be um, criticized. One who has made a good career out of blackface is Chuck 
Pitt, a gay white male comedian from Canada. He has attracted criticism and cancellation of his performances because of his portrayal of a black woman in a character called Shirley Q. Licker in a cabaret act for white audiences. There have apparently even been demonstrations against him from black, gay, and transgender activists, but none yet from feminists because the mockery of women that is the basis of drag is so normalized that it is invisible. Many forms of mockery of other cultures and ethnicities are acted out by drag queens and they are controversial, though their impersonation of women is not. In Australia, there are white drag queens who do Aboriginal drag, such as the Australian drag queen Scarlett Adams and competitor in drag queen drag race down under in 2021. Photos came to light showing that he had performed not only in blackface, but in a burqa, Aboriginal dress and more, but he suffered no penalty. He apologized, but pointed out that a lot of other drag queens did blackface. The Aboriginal drag queen Felicius Fox objected fiercely to Adam's pretense of being Aboriginal, but had no awareness that women might find mockery of their bodies, culture and personhood objectionable. Mockery of women is the foundation of drag, but it's only the admixture of race and ethnicity that occasions any complaint. All these men have built careers on the mockery of women. There's no harm to be seen in it because women are not understood as fully human, not seen as capable of being insulted or offended against. It is hard to understand why transracialism and transgenderism or even transableism or transspeciesism are understood so differently when they are all fantasies and for the men involved mainly sexual. There are two possible explanations. One is that women are seen as so unimportant, having no material reality, really just a trope, i.e. a figurative or metaphorical use of a word or expression, so lowly in status, barely human compared with men, that it is of no account if men just treat women as a figment of their imagination. It may even be that women have been so conditioned into accepting that they are less worse than, worth than men that they would consider it ridiculous to suggest that they could be as worthy of respect as black men should be. The other is that those who think there is a difference believe that though many identities are simply unreal and may be insulting, when women identify as women, when men identify as women, this does represent something real that some essence of gender, even if not biology, makes the men who claim it into some kind of real women. There is a great deal of propaganda from trans rights and gay organizations through school programs and the medical profession to suggest that children and adults who claim to be the opposite sex really do possess some unique qualities that make them different from the ordinary boys and girls and men and women that they really are. And many even gender critical feminists may really believe this, though I find that hard to accept when they exempt men who pretend to be women from the complete rejection that they would almost certainly extend to transracialists who are very clearly not possessed of any special qualities at all that make them different from anyone else except active imaginations. I want to finish by talking about the problematic notion of identity. 
the basis for all the acting out that is done in the name of transracialism, transgenderism, transablism, and transspeciesism is the concept of identity. Identity today mainly means a sexually exciting fantasy in a man's head. It is a very dangerous notion politically because it destroys the meaning and use of categories of oppression in social justice politics, something that took decades in the building and that many feminists and lesbian feminists took part in. There is a history to the term. Back in the 1970s, some feminists adopted the notion of identity in relation to what is now called intersectionality and then came to be called identity politics. The black feminists who promoted the term sought to explain that a woman could identify as both female and black and her experience would be fundamentally affected by being in possession of two oppression identities which were intertwined. Identity, however, did not mean then what it means today when it has been emptied of political meaning. Back then, it meant something like class consciousness, i.e. whether a person identified being black or being a woman, which was a necessary basis for anti-racist and feminist political organization and action. Many who were women or black or both might not make a political identification, i.e. recognizing how these identities affected their lives and deciding to take action, but being black and being a woman were understood as material categories based on biology, history, and circumstances. You might not politicize the categories, but whether you did or not, the categories remained materially real. Now, identity means something quite different, something entirely in the mind and with no connection with material reality at all. This changeover from identity being seen as applying to something real to meaning a fantasy took place largely in the 1990s as the move to post-structuralism and queer theory in the universities. Back in the late 90s at the University of Melbourne where I taught, I was horrified when my subjects were placed in the category of politics of identity, which included psychoanalytic politics. No, I said, being a woman is not an identity, it is biological reality. This was not of course understood and I was just seen as being difficult. The concept of identity as fantasy won out. Today, as we know, the concept of gender identity is being written into law and policy. Equality acts, which would once have applied to the material categories of race, class, and disability, have now been extended to cover projections of the imagination. This is likely to have an effect on the very concept of equality. If men can claim to be women, why should not white men pretend to be black? Why should not men with disability fetishes pretend to have disabilities and demand to be accommodated at the workplace for the wheelchairs or other equipment that they do not need because in fact, they have no physical impairments? The determined undermining that of all that we have built as feminists or other campaigners for social justice and equality is taking place. If the fantasy in which men pretend to be women is accepted politically as it is at present, why will the categories of race and disability survive as material realities rather than being just fantasies? The work of decades is being dismantled to service the whims of white, able-bodied men. Presently, we are far from the recognition that transgenderism is an insult to women. Today, our failure to respect men's fantasies in the form of misgendering, for instance, can lead to huge penalties. We are in the position of the peasants who had to tuck, tug their forelocks to the lord of the manor. But we should not mute the ambition to see women recognized as full human beings. 
We must work towards a situation where Good Housekeeping magazine will have an article excoriating woman face. We have to get there because anything else means forever accepting that women are inferior. How do we defend gender nonconformity, including wearing the clothes assigned, assigned to the other sex? Are we opposed to all cross-dressing and whether that does not reinforce the idea that women need to wear dresses and makeup as, a part, as part of our womanhood? How do we peak people? Well, we're all doing it in all the different ways we do. So I think just hearing how everybody else is doing it is, is the best thing we can do there. And Isla's been talking about it here. In relation to the second question, I think this is an interesting question because of course, yes, people should be allowed to wear what they like. The problem is at the moment is that we have a costume of subordination, which is usually imposed upon women. And we have a costume which is related to dignity and power, which is what men are able to use. So it's not a question of everybody should be allowed to wear everything. In theory, that is the case. The question is whether they are actually imitating those positions in the hierarchy of sex. I think that's the problem, really. Um, otherwise, of course, and as I said in my book, Beauty and Misogyny, if instead of makeup, which is obviously about women's subordination, um, everybody got to face paint and paint tulips on their forehead, for instance, that would be lovely. And there's no problem with that. We should all do decoration. Lovely, lovely, lovely. The problem is when those practices relate to the hierarchy of power and men, men's power and the subordination of women. But it is complicated, I agree. How do we ensure that people are allowed to wear what they like without being discriminated against, but also make it socially unacceptable to imitate the subordination of women for excitement. But yes, there is a problem there that we need to talk through. I think that's right. 